Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. If we haven't met, uh, my name is uh, Arnaldo. I I get the pleasure of pastoring this community here at Anchor Southwest. And again, as... um, Uh, James said we are continuing in the series. Now, before we get into this text, uh, particularly, I want to give us a bit of a summary of where we've come from. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, which were originally, again, I want to remind you, just one book. This is telling one story. In fact, uh, Samuel is the first part of a larger uh, narrative uh, that covers Samuel and the book of 1 and 2 Kings. And here we begin the story with a woman named Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, who was barren. And of course, as you can imagine, uh, this caused Hannah much grief. And Hannah prays and she pleads with God to give her a son. And he opens up her womb and she, uh, uh, God gives her a child. And what she does is she gives the child back to God. And she gives uh, Samuel, this, this son, she gives him uh, to the, this prophet Eli in the temple, and he serves God all of his days. Last week, we covered a large portion of text, but we zeroed in on this battle uh, uh, between, and now Samuel's all grown up, and there's a battle between Israel and their arch nemesis, the Philistines, and the Israelites, they lost this battle, uh, and they lost 4,000 men last year in one battle, and then they take this uh, uh, box Uh, The Ark of the Covenant, it's called. They take this box, and inside of the box of the Ark of the Covenant was held uh, these two stones where where God, uh, uh, rather the the first set of stones, uh, Moses broke, uh, and the second set of stones, Moses had to carve out again. But in this box, the Ark of the Covenant, was the Ten Commandments. And the, the people of Israel were treating this box, the Ark of the Covenant, as a talisman, as a, as a lucky charm. And they, they bring this lucky charm after their battle where they lost 4,000 men. And then with their quote-unquote lucky charm, they lose 30,000 men. And God ends up defeating uh, the Philistines in a whole other way. The Ark of the Covenant is captured after that battle. And it stays with the Philistines for seven months, but they, it ends up turning real sour for them. Uh, and God sends disease and plagues to, the, plagues to the Philistines, and the Philistines quickly get rid of the ark. And that's the end of chapter 7. That's chapters 1 to 7. And we pick up the story here in chapter 8. But at this point, after the ark goes back to Israel, there's a measure of stability at this point. There's a measure of political stability. There's a measure of religious stability. There's a, there's a measure of rest. But I want you to remember, if, if, you, know, uh, if you remember the book of Judges, the, the book that comes before uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, this is the normal uh, rhythm. This is the normal cycle uh, where the people of God rebel, God sends a judge, they're, uh, uh, they're rescued from their enemies, and then there's some form of peace. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 8. But before we jump into the story, help me to pray one more time. Father, we thank you. For your goodness to us. We thank you that you've given us enough health and enough energy to be here this morning. And I pray that we will not check ourselves, our emotions, the harder ones that we may be feeling, depending on what kind of week we may have had. Lord, I pray that we don't check our minds at the door, but we bring all of ourselves to this place. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that wherever people are, searching or settled, Lord, that you would awaken something fresh in us today. Holy Spirit, we need you to do a special work. My words are not enough. 
And so I pray that I would forget the things that I prepared that are not going to be helpful for your people today. And I pray that you would help me to remember the things that will be. And more than anything else, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said? And the church said? So all is well in the land of Israel. Their enemies, the Philistines, are being subdued. The Lord is being worshipped. Samuel is a righteous judge over Israel. But the honeymoon quickly comes to an end. I want you to come back with me to verse 1 because I, I need us to see this in the text itself. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint to us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, this is what we need to get. That up until this point, Samuel has been a nearly perfect leader. He was consecrated to the Lord between the ages of three and five. I mean, he worked for the church uh, from a very early age. He was universally recognized at this point by uh, 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 being one of the prophets of God and a judge over the people. But now the cracks begin to show. He's getting old at this point, and he makes his two corrupt sons judges over Israel. Now, let me give you a couple reasons why this is jacked up, why this shouldn't have happened. First reason is Samuel does not have the authority to appoint his sons as judges over Israel. Samuel seems to be wanting to set up his own kind of mini monarchy because judges were, were not supposed to be appointed by other judges. Judges were to be appointed directly by God for a purpose. And here, Samuel is kind of operating with, it's fueled by nepotism. And if you remember, and if you are a, a, a fan of The Office, if, I want to remind you, season seven, episode 17, where Michael Scott, the, uh, the manager of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, he makes his uh, nephew, uh, he hires his nephew as, as an intern, as it were, but he is incredibly rude and incredibly incompetent. But he hides the fact that he hires his nephew. And the whole office, I mean, is just getting so angry because Michael just will not fire this kid. He his nephew continues to perform poorly on the job to the point where everyone wants to see him gone. And Michael continues to vouch for him until it comes out that he's his uncle. And eventually, obviously, he quits. Uh, I, I, he, he runs out. He quits. Uh, but but the, the, this episode uh, displays the dangers of nepotism, of this idea that regardless of someone's competence or regardless of their ability to perform a task or a job, because I am their friend or their family, I'm going to sneak them in through the back door. And here, this is exactly what Samuel is doing. And so the first thing that's jacked up about the seed, the, the first cracks in Samuel's otherwise pristine armor is that he is grasping for power through his family line by appointing his two sons as judges. But the second thing, to add uh, uh, insult to injury, it's no secret that his sons are wicked. Like, th this, is, this is not unknown to the people. 
He doesn't have the authority to place some judges, but then on top of that, they are corrupt. The elders, these representatives, the councilmen of Israel, they, they come to Samuel and they ask him, why are you doing this? Like they, they, they corrupt justice. They take bribes. And particularly in a culture of honor, shame, the fact that this was known is particularly, we're supposed to feel the weight of the shame of this. It's no secret who his sons are. It's out in the open. And this is plain. I mean, listen, you could, you know, you could be driving down the highway and, and be pulled over because you were speeding and you could kind of argue the fact, I didn't see the speed limit, right? Like you, you can argue ignorance. Samuel cannot argue ignorance. He was a prophet. He was a seer. He knew that Deuteronomy 16 said this, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. They would have known this. In fact, most likely they would have committed this to memory. And so first, he doesn't have the authority to do this. Second, he still does this, but his sons are corrupt. Third, this shows a gross either incompetence in Samuel or ignorance on the part of Samuel. Either way, he doesn't look very good in the story. Another, like I mentioned, another name for prophet is a seer, right? A prophet would receive a message or a vision from God, and then God would, uh, through them, uh, deliver that to the people. They, they, were, they saw things that other people didn't. And the irony, the irony of Samuel's story, the way that it ends, is that the seer either refuses to see or cannot see. The seer himself, like the person who's supposed to be leading God's people, either at the end of his life cannot see or refuses to see. And so, verse 5, and said to him, behold, you're old, these are the, uh, the councilmen, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint to us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing, but the thing displeased Samuel, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. I, I've, I've got to wonder what's going through Samuel's mind at this point. Like he's gasping. He's like, I, he's scandalized. I, I don't get him because he's scandalized at the fact that these people see something wrong. And they go to him and they say, actually, give us a king. And I can imagine Samuel, I've served you all these years since I was in preschool, right? Three to five years old, he was in the temple. I served you all these years. I've brought you all these messages from God. I've judged well, he's thinking. I've brought the, the word of God to the people of God. He's thinking he sacrificed for them. And this is how you repay me. You ask for a king when you know we're supposed to be ruled by judges. And this is a dangerous place for any leader in God's church to be, this, this sense of entitlement. How dare you do this to me after all I've done for you? In verse 7, Samuel prays to God and the Lord responds and the Lord says this, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing also to you. Now then, 
Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is tragic, what they're doing here. This is, uh, even if Samuel did not have the authority to appoint judges, his, his sons, his corrupt sons as judges, the people's insistence that the Lord not just provide him a new judge, but a king, we need to understand something is happening here. This is, this is akin to uh, uh, Washington, D.C., January 6th. This is usurpation. This, this is the people again rebelling. This is, think Genesis 3. The people are again rebelling against God. Because you see, Israel was supposed to be different. Israel was, so was supposed to be ruled by Yahweh, by God, the invisible king, through his judges. And they say, no, we, we don't want that. We want to be like the nations. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy, right? God was supposed to be king, but the people wanted a monarchy. They wanted a human king just like the rest of the nations. And in so doing, of course, of course they're rejecting Samuel, but in a much deeper and a much more fundamental way, they are actually rejecting God. They're rejecting God's rule over them. And this happens in verse 10 as Samuel gives them word as to what this is going to look like. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from them. And this is what he said. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer in that day. And so he warns them. He warns them of the choice that they are about to make, that God is going to allow them to make. And, and, and over and over again, he will take, 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 he will take. Six times it mentions that this king that you are asking for, this rebellion that you are signing your name off of, he will take your people, he will take your property, he will take your land, he will take your livestock, his, his, his. And you would think, you would think that this would sway them. Imagine, imagine your local councilman or councilwoman and, and their banner over how they're going to serve you in public office, I'm going to take and take and take and take and take and take. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't elect this person into office. And yet, and yet, verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, 
he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And so from the get, this is what I need us to understand, that from the jump, out of the gate, the ingredients for Israel's failure are right here. They're called to be different for the sake of the world. Listen, Israel was called out. Abraham was a pagan. He, he didn't worship Yahweh, didn't know Yahweh. And Abraham was called by God to be different, to, to build a nation, to be different. Their call was to be different, not for the condemnation of the world. When we think different, we think I'm going to be different so I can be somehow better, so I can lord it over you. But the call for Israel was to be different for the sake of the world. Their call was to be distinct so that the world would see them and say, oh, so that is how you are meant to live as a human being in relationship with God. Their call was to be a light for the nations, but they are forsaking it and embracing it for the darkness of the nations. Their call is to be different for the sake of the world, but they are forsaking it for their desire to be just like it. They are, in essence, inverting what it means to be the people of God. They are embracing the ways of their pagan neighbors. And this is the scariest part. As I was preparing this, this frightened me to the core that God lets them. He will let you. He lets them. There's no coercion here. There may be sadness. There may be grief. I sense anger from Samuel, but not from God. He lets them go. This is the most surprising twist in the story. If you've read Genesis up to Judges, you know, and and if you're honest with yourself, And if you know, if you've been able to look at the mirror and be even for a split second honest with yourself, this is us in the story. This is me rejecting God. And what surprises me and what frightens me is that he lets them. And God let them and told Samuel to give them exactly what they wanted. C.S. Lewis famously said or wrote, he said, when God wants to play a practical joke on a man, he will give him the desires of his heart. I told y'all this was a tragic story. But I want to draw out some practical applications from our text here, 1 Samuel 8, as we close. And we're not closing just yet, but as we kind of close. First is this. The first thing I, I want us to see is like Israel, we can become obsessed with becoming like the nations. I've mentioned this before, but Israel's existence is predicated around them being different. That's the whole point of God calling Abraham. That's the whole point of the Exodus. That's the whole point of the Bible, of Scripture. That's that's the mission, literally, to be different, to be distinct, to be holy, to be other. Not simply for the sake of judgment or for the sake of being different, but for the sake of liberation, for the sake of salvation. Israel was called to be different for the sake of the world. We get this. Holiness, being different, is not just for ourselves. It is so that we would be aligning a a shining light to the world so that the world would look at Israel and say, "Ah, that's how we should be living. Israel's mission was supposed to draw people into the kingdom of God through their distinctiveness, not through them being just like them. And if there's an age 
in our 2,000-year history, from the time of Christ till today, I don't know of another where we carry the same spirit of amalgamation, of a desire to be just like the world. We want to look like the world. We want to sound like the world. We want to be accepted by the world. We want to be affirmed by the world. We want to accomplish God's purposes with the ways of the world. We want our lives to mirror the world. Our dreams, listen, our dreams and our goals for our children are the same as the world's. We make our life decisions in the same way that the world does. We employ and we use our sexuality and behave in relationships the way the world does. We choose who to date and the way the world, the way the world does. Damn to hell if they don't share what we claim is the truest thing about us, our allegiance to Jesus. In a million ways and with a million choices, we choose to be like the nations. We may have the veneer of faith, but the substructures of our thinking are secular. If our lives were a house, for instance, what, what often happens when we become Christians, particularly for those who may have grown up in the faith, for those who uh, have not, quote unquote, known a day without uh, worshiping Jesus, what so often happens is that uh, we think becoming a Christian means that we change a couple photos in our house. We, we, we rearrange the furniture of our living room. That, that is not what it means from being moved from death to life. This isn't a, 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 like a renovation of who we are. This isn't makeup. It isn't just a facelift. God comes in and destroys the whole structure and asks us to rebuild it on vastly different foundations than what our culture does. And yet, so often we make choices that betray our witness. Tim Keller, he sums it up perfectly when he writes this. Individuals could profess to not be secular people, to have religious faith. Yet at a practical level, the existence of God may have no noticeable impact on their life decisions and conduct. This is because in a secular age like ours, even religious people tend to choose lovers and spouses, careers and friendships and financial options with no higher goal, listen to this, than their own present time personal happiness sacrificing personal peace and affluence for the transcendent for transcendent causes becomes rare even for people who say they believe in absolute values and eternity even if you are not a secular person the secular age can secularize faith until it is seen as simply one more choice in life along with job recreation hobbies politics listen rather than the comprehensive framework that determines all of life's decisions. The furnishings of our lives scream, I am a disciple of Jesus. All the while, we're being far more shaped by the desires, dreams, goals of our culture, usually by the medium of Instagram and TikTok music movies. But the heart of our call, listen to me, that the heart of our call as followers of Jesus has not changed from the call that was given to Israel. And I want to quickly give us five ways that we're called to be different. And I wish I could spend more time here, but I just want to give us five ways that we're called to be different as the people of God. Number one is this, our identity. We, we are obsessed, can we say? We're obsessed with identity. Who am I? Who, who are we? We think about 
We no longer live under the modern pressure of creating an identity for ourselves. We are assigned an identity. You are now a child of God. That is who you are. Irrevocably, you, you are now in Christ. We receive an identity from being united to Christ. That's one thing that changes for us. The second thing is politics. We think about our political systems differently. We, we align ourselves differently. We stop fully aligning ourselves with the left or the right. And we don't try to choose this mushy middle, but we see how living in the kingdom of God is its own politic. We can see now that both left and right go beautifully right and horribly wrong. And so we do identity different. We do politics different. We uh, live from a new approval. We do approval differently. We no longer need, you know how free you would be if you didn't feel the need to be approved by your peers or your boss or the ghost of your parents telling you as you grew up, you weren't enough. Could you imagine if you lived out of the voice that came from heaven as Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, if you lived from a place where you knew that the only opinion of you that matters says this, you are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Imagine what kind of freedom we would have just, just with this, just with living from a new approval. Identity, politics, approval, sexuality. We engage our sexuality in a radically different way than our culture does. We, uh, we steward both our romantic relationships and our singleness, listen, in such a way that proves Jesus is enough. And in the church, we stop making an idol out of marriage. That's, that's what we do. We, we engage our sexuality, our, our, the fact that we are sexual beings differently. We think about that differently. Finally, I want to say that we live from a new security. We no longer look to our careers we no longer look to our bank accounts for our security. We don't serve both God and money. Our security comes from this. Oh, if we would, oh man, if we would just get this. Our security comes, God is with you. You right now sitting here with the disease and the chaos and the sin and the violence in the world, and we, and we live in a place, listen, that's pretty nice. You are no safer now than you will be in eternity. If, imagine that. Whatever comes, God is with us. Whatever happens, God is for you. There is nothing that can ultimately harm you. I imagine the courage that, is, that we, we, we squander because we forget that we're safe. There, there's nothing that can ultimately harm you now. You are, there's a new security from knowing that God is with us and for us. And so, the first thing I want us to walk away with as we think about 1 Samuel 8 is that we too can become obsessed with becoming like the nations, like Israel. But the second point I want to mention is this, is that 
we need to be careful what we ask God for. Let me try to get it up here. We need to be careful what we ask God for because God may very well give it to us. We need to be very, very careful how we pray. Very careful what we ask God for because God may very well give it to us. I know it's unusual for you to come here and uh, to come to church and say, man, you better be careful what you pray for. Because we actually need to be afraid of God's yes sometimes. You, you need to be afraid that God will say yes to some of your prayers. Because this happens. God will appoint over you a king. And he will warn you. And yet still, we will pray for that thing. Why? Because God does not coerce. God is a non-coercive God. He will allow us to feel the consequences of our actions and of our foolishness. I know that there are many people in the room praying and praying and praying, and maybe you're praying like the man in James praying and asking so that you can spend whatever you're praying for and asking for on your fallen and fleshly desires. And thank God that he says no to a lot of your prayers. I, I look back at my life. I've been a Christian for 20 years, and I could imagine if I get to heaven, new earth, and, I, and I, I go to where God keeps the records, right? And I, and I go to this, to this ancient uh, sort of steel uh, uh, filing cabinet, I can imagine. And I open it up, and it just goes and 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 goes. And I go through all the prayers, and I go through all the times that God has said no. All I will do at that point is say thank you. Thank you that you have said No. God, thank God that God, is not a, that God is a good parent and not one that just gives us everything we ask for. But we must be careful because God may grant you your prayers. Because the reality is that everything we ask for, everything we want is not all good for us. You get that, right? I know maybe a lot of us may be angry at God right now for not delivering on the prayers that we've prayed for, we've fasted for, we have given up things for, we have positioned our life to receive these things, and yet God has continued to say no, but we are too stupid to realize. I am too stupid. Let me not just offend you. Let me offend myself. I'm too stupid to realize that God's no is gracious. God's no is good news, because in this story, God's yes will wreak havoc, and yes, Yes, of course, God will redeem all the havoc in the world. He will take their stupidity and their rebellion, and he will somehow use it for good. That is not what I'm saying. Nothing is wasted. And yet, we think we are wiser than God. And so if God doesn't answer my prayer for a certain thing, we think that we're done wrong by. But God is God, and he knows what we need. And if we knew everything, if you can even imagine yourself as this other kind of being that knows all things and knows all possibilities, who stands outside of time and who knows all possible routes to the end, we would still choose what God chooses. Best be careful of God's yes. Because in his divine purpose and plans, he will allow things that even grieve his heart. The problem, of course, is that our hearts are broken, our desires are disordered, and so we need to be careful what we ask for because God may very well give it to us. And finally, the last thing I want to draw out from this text for us this morning is that we are in desperate need of a different kind of king that was promised to Israel. We are in desperate need of a different kind of king that was given to Israel. When we become like the world, it takes and takes and takes. 
When we follow the ways and the patterns of the broken systems, it takes and it takes and it takes. When we ask for a king to be like the nations among us, we end up in chains, slave to our sins and our fallen desires. But there is a better way and there is a better king that the book of Samuel points to. Whereas the kings and the ways of this world take we have a king that actually gives. I want to give you just a, 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 a bit of a preview as, as to what kind of king we actually get. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him graciously what? Give us all things. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who what? Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you then, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, the world gives, 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 gives. Sorry, the world takes. The world takes and takes and takes and takes. But the king that we need, the king that was given to us, gives and gives and gives. And we are invited into this life of mutual giving. We are invited into this life-giving existence that no longer depends on us, but the gracious, life-giving, and death-defying reality that God has come in Christ to deliver us. And this is one of the major points of 1 and 2 Samuel, that there, there are leadership lessons in here for sure. There are good moral examples in this story, for sure. There are failures that we can learn from, yes. But more than anything, what these books will continue to point out at us is that we need Jesus. That we need a new kind of king. And listen, and, and you need Jesus. This is just not rhetoric for me. Like you, sitting here, I, I, I don't care how long you've been following Jesus or if you think you're not worthy of following Jesus, wherever on the spectrum you may live, where you may sit, you need Jesus. You need a new king. Whether you think your sin, your brokenness, your dysfunction is too much for the Lord to handle or if you think, I've been, the, I've been the, around the block a couple times, I'm good. One thing we all share in this room we are Samuel. We, we are his corrupt sons. We are Eli. We are his corrupt sons. We are Israel. We choose the wrong things all the time. And many of us are naive enough to think that if we were king, right, if, listen, if I was there, if, 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 if I was a councilman of Israel, I would have stopped this. If, if, if I was in the, uh, in the garden, I would have obeyed. But the reality is that once we wake up from that delusion that in our hearts, Left on their own, our hearts are wicked and dark and broken and dysfunctional. And we will often choose the very thing. Have you ever, have you, have you ever been close enough to a drug addict to smell the drugs off of them, the alcohol? Have you, have you, have you? I, I've been a lot of drug, around a lot of drug addicts in my life, some in my own family. Do you know how heartbreaking it is to watch someone continually choose the thing that kills them? I don't care if you've never put a needle in your arm. I don't care if you've never snorted coke. I don't care. We, we are all the people 
like that. If, if we think we're too good for that, that's a step away. That's all us spiritually. Every single one of us, we choose the very things that destroy us. And we need a new king. I didn't come here this morning to tell you how, like how to be better or, 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 or 10 steps to live a better life. I'm here to tell you that you are desperately wicked and we make terrible choices. And yet there is a good king that has come to rescue us that doesn't depend on our wisdom. It doesn't depend on our goodness. It doesn't depend on our church attendance. It doesn't depend on whether we read, have read and memorized scripture or not. It doesn't depend on our track record. It depends fully on the finished work of the new king, Jesus, because that is the gospel. The gospel is that we have a new king. And so, it's when we come to the end of our perceived goodness in and of ourselves that we can finally receive the goodness of the God who became man so that he would become our king. You know, oftentimes the things that we pine for in the flesh will end, us, will end up making us its slave. But in his wisdom, God sent his son to become a slave for me, for us. Let me, let me take you to Philippians 2 real quick. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave, us, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. God himself took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he what? He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What Paul is saying here is that in, it, in the Greek, it means every knee shall bow. All the spiritual beings that God created, the ones that have fallen and the ones that haven't. And every single person who has ever existed on this plane of earth for time immemorial till I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. Every single person Every, every single person will bow the knee to the king. And every tongue is going to declare that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He is Lord. He is king to the glory of God the Father. And so my invitation is if you haven't yet, let me, let, let me give you a snapshot of what your future is going to look like. You will one day bow to the king. Let's get used to it now. And I invite you, if you haven't yet, to bow to the King Jesus today and to give your life wholly over to him. The human king, the human king would seek to make us slaves. The divine king would seek to make to become a human so that he would become become a slave for us 
And this is the God we worship today. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that, in fact, you are good. That the truest thing about you is that you are good and that you are wise. Lord, help us to be your people. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot be good on our own. We, we, must, uh, we must receive divine help and divine power. And so help us more than anything else receive that word over us, that we are loved, that we are seen, that we are cherished, that you do not love a future version of us when we've cleaned ourselves up as if that were even possible. But you love us now. You love us still. You know me through and through. You know my heart. You know my desires. You see the brokenness there within, and you choose to love. And may we, Lord, have the power this morning to see the love, to feel the love, to receive it, to have the power to say, yes, I am a child of God. Lord, spare us in your mercy from prayers that we should not pray. We thank you for the no's in our life. We thank you for the times, Lord, where we have pleaded with you and yet we were asking for things that would end up destroying us. That by the mercy of Jesus, Lord, you've said no. Help us to embrace your plan and your ways for the sake of your name and for the sake of our joy. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. And the church said,